0: Well, this is a little embarrassing, isn't it? For only the second time since we've been doing this, we had a malfunction of equipment on this past Sunday, and we're unable to record the message. So I'm going to try to um, uh, kind of give you uh, an idea of what went on on Sunday, Uh, go through the scripture and the message both, uh, in hopes that you will be able to Maybe get this last in the series on a life worth living and be able to apply it to your lives as well. We're in the study, as I said, for the summer, a life worth living. This is the final, week nine of the series, and the title of this week's message is New Life, New Relationships. We're going to begin reading in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. I'm going to read with you through Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. Seems like a lot of scripture, but there's, there's a lot of uh, stuff in here we need to cover. In this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God. It's the only rule that we have for our faith and for our life. So listen as I read to you from God's word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be paid, repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in all you, in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all about the news about me. He's a dear brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. "'He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. "'They will tell you everything that is happening here. "'My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends sends you his greetings, "'as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. "'You have received instructions about him. "'If he comes to you, welcome him. "'Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings.' These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him, that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Our friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Doesn't it make sense to you that if, if you have a new life in Christ, you're not going to also have the same old relationships? You're going to have some new relationships. Things will start to change in those old relationships. Do you ever struggle with that? I, I can tell you that I certainly do. Did they all change immediately and become perfectly uh, placed immediately? No, I don't think so. The neat thing about this passage is that it takes in the whole gamut of relationships. Let's look at the family. Let's look at the believers. Let's look at those who aren't believers. Let's look at God. How does God actually make our relationships new? That's the question we're going to look at. You go to a marriage seminar, guys, and if you're a husband, you listen to everything that is said to your wife because she should be doing that so you can have a successful marriage. So my warning to you is this morning, don't listen to what this says about somebody else. Listen to what it has to say about you. So let's jump in here. New relationships mean that I make the choices to, number one, be unselfish toward my family. And there's three family relationships that Paul talks about in Colossians, um, beginning at verse 318. The first couple we're familiar with, wives and husbands and children and fathers. But why does it talk about slaves and masters? Why is that? And it's the same in Ephesians and in 1 Peter. Why does the Bible do that? Well, the fact of the matter is that in the Roman Empire, there were as many slaves as there were free people, and slaves were considered a part of the family. Everybody had a slave, and they were considered a part of the family. We still have some of that slave-master relationship for about 12 or. <laughs> Eight hours a day if we work. So let's get some keywords in each of these areas that make these relationships work. A key word for wives that the Bible uses is submit. Submit. Submit carries the idea of unselfish love, but the Bible word is the word submit. And now that's gotten a lot of bad press here lately the idea of submission to somebody else who tells me what to do and who who doesn't really care about me, someone who is always ordering me around, is not the biblical idea of, of submission at all. In fact, the biblical idea of submission is no one can force you to do it. It has to be something that you choose in your life. So when the Bible says wives submit to your husbands, There are four truths that I can think of about submission. The first is this. Submission does not cancel out our equality. Submission does not cancel out our equality. Anytime the Bible tells you to submit to someone else, it doesn't mean that you are unequal with them. Here's the greatest proof of that. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible tells us that Jesus submitted himself to the Father. And I would ask you, aren't the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all equal? Absolutely they are. Our whole faith is built on that principle. Jesus made the willing choice then to submit himself to the Father. So it doesn't mean that you're not equal. Secondly, everyone is to submit in some way or another to other people. This isn't just for women that we're talking about here, not just for wives. Every one of us has relationships in which we have to submit to other people. The third truth about submission is this. Submission doesn't mean that if asked to, you would disobey God. A lot of people think that if you're really submissive, you have to do whatever someone else says. Of course not. Sometimes when somebody says, you have to disobey God, whether it's a government authority or a husband or wife, instead of saying, no, I have to obey God, what we do is we get really resistant. We get resistant to the point of bitterness. And somehow the early disciples were able to say, we realize you can throw us into jail, but we have to do what we have to do. They said they're going to obey God, but they still respected the people who were authorities in their lives. And sometimes we have to do that in our lives as well. The fourth truth about submission is, submission can't, cannot be imposed. Husband, anytime you say to your wife, you have to submit to me. I can tell you from personal experience that just ain't gonna work does that work for any of us i don't think you could find me a person that it does you can't impose submission on somebody it's a willing choice to respect somebody else you can't impose respect the verse says wives submit to your husbands it doesn't say husbands Get your wives to submit themselves to you. The real key to submission in marriage, and and Ephesians uh, Ephesians 5 um, talks about this a whole lot more. The real key to submission in marriage is there's a leadership responsibility that the husband has, and they have to take that responsibility. So I'm saying husbands, take that responsibility before God. Don't abdicate it. Take that responsibility of leadership before God. So the key word for wives is submit. The key word for husbands is love. Guys, I said love, not make love. Somebody said that marriage is when you agree to spend the rest of your life sleeping in a room that's too warm beside someone who's sleeping in a room that's too cold. That's... True in our instance, I don't know about you. We're very different people from each other. Love and respect for each other are incredibly important. And Paul's just saying, if you're a new person in Christ, here's the new kind of relationship that you're going to have. You're going to be able to respect somebody like you've never been able to before because you've got the strength of the love of Christ in your life. And guys, you're going to be able to love somebody sacrificially like you've never been able to before because you've now got the strength of Christ in your life. Are you going to be perfect at it? Absolutely not. You're going to work at it for the rest of your life. All of us do, but we're growing into that kind of new relationship. The gentleness of of love through words and actions or as we learned from the kids a couple of weeks ago what we say and what we do or as we talk about often here at renovation proclamation and demonstration the gentleness of love toward one another that's the key that's the real key it's the little things that count in relationships it's the little things that change my attitude and your attitude this willingness to submit to one another, this willingness to sacrificially love another person. Well, what's the key word for children? It's obey. Obey. The Greek word obey literally means to hear under someone. That means that in order to obey someone, you have to well you have to listen to them. Obviously the Bible says here Children, you have a responsibility to obey. But this is saying to you and me that we have a responsibility to make sure that they hear what we say. If obedience means that you listen under somebody, if we don't say it in the way that they can hear it and understand it, we don't give them the opportunity to even be obedient. Here's the key word for fathers. This could be said... I think for both parents, but for fathers uh, for sure. The key word is don't. Don't. D O N apostrophe T. Both here and in Ephesians, Paul says, Dads, there's some things that we do that we shouldn't do because those things irritate our children. Don't exasperate your children, it says in Ephesians uh, 5. Don't embitter your children, as we just read here. So, fathers, I'm saying to you, don't embitter your children. First of all, don't insult them. It's easy to insult, but there's something about our words as dads that carry a greater weight than we can even realize. You've heard in testimonies here at this church and in other churches, when people would get up and say, my dad said this to me, or... My dad never said that to me. Instead of words of insult, our kids need to hear words of encouragement. And that doesn't mean you can never be negative, because we have to be negative sometimes when negativity happens. But it's so easy, I'm saying, to share words of insult. Do not insult your kids. Secondly, don't ignore them. This is probably the one we do the most. We get busy. Our lives get so wrapped up in things. We look back and think, I don't want to ignore my kids. I don't want that to happen. But then week after week and month after month and then it becomes year after year, pretty soon they're gone. That's one of those things that embitters your children. Maybe the practical thing to do is to make a date with one of your kids this week. One that you've been ignoring. The easiest one to ignore, listen to this, the easiest one to ignore is the one that's the most like you. They irritate you the most because they are the most like you. The third thing is this, don't indulge your kids. We ignore them and because we've ignored them, we think we have to indulge them. What do they really want from us? What do they really want? Well, I would say to all the youths out there, to quote one of my favorite movies, to all you youths, love is spelled T-I-M-E. They want our time. They want our encouragement. And dads, if, if you haven't said, I'll love you to your kids today, you need to do that on the way home. Maybe you say, "My dad never said that to me." Well, you can break that pattern and teach your sons and daughters to say it to their kids. They need to hear, "I love you," sincerely. A key word for slaves that comes up and up again and again in this passage is the word "lord." How in the world does that relate to us, the slaves, Lord? Well, if you and I are going to have a relationship with the boss, and we're reading this passage that says, treat them as your Lord, how would your boss react if you came in and called him Lord? Some of your bosses probably would like it. They'd really like it. Now, obviously for us Christians, we have only one Lord, and that's the Lord Jesus. We don't work for a boss As the Lord of our lives. We work for Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives. That's why this says again and again: don't do your work for anyone else. Work as for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you're serving. Don't do it to please other people. Do it to please the Lord Jesus. Verses 23 through 24 says this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. There's some good news. The pay that you're going to get at your work, that's not the only benefit that comes. That's good news, isn't it? We receive a reward from the Lord also. Then it goes on to say, it is the Lord Christ whom you are serving. And backing up to verse twenty two we read "Slaves obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. The word sincere" in our language comes comes originally from the Latin language it had to do with the process of polishing marble. marble was a Difficult, still is a very difficult pol- uh, process to polish. Particularly without all the machinery that we have today. So sometimes they'd put wax on the marble. And that would cover all the blemishes and scratches and make it look as smooth as glass. Like, like it was polished marble. But when it got out in the heat, you know what would happen. The, when the wax would melt and you'd see all those blemishes again. Marble that didn't have the wax on it, that had been polished smooth, was without wax, it was called. And the Bible says that you and I should serve with a sincere heart, a genuine heart, a not faking it heart, a heart without wax, The only way to do that is to have a genuine relationship with Christ, even at work. How are you going to serve the Lord at work if you're not thinking about him at work? You've got to think about him at work also. How is he going to be your boss, your Lord, if he's not on your mind all the time? So for slaves, the key word is Lord. The key word for masters is... You who are masters, bosses, company owners, here's the key word for you. Provide. As a believer in Christ, you're responsible to provide for your workers in the best way that you can, with excellence, not to be excessive, not to do things that are kind of outside the bounds of reason, but the best way you possibly can. That's another one of the things that the Bible teaches us about relationships. And there's a phrase that that kind of arches over all of these different personalities. And that phrase is this, unselfish love. That's the attitude I'm to have in all my relationships. and That's the, that's the thing, the key that makes them all work. What's the attitude that you have for your relationship with God? what attitude do you have? Well, new relationships mean that I make the choice to also be devoted to prayer. If I'm going to have an exciting relationship with God, I have to be devoted in prayer. And how do you do that? How do you express real devotion in prayer? Do you have to get out on your knees? Is that devotion to prayer? What does it mean to be devoted in prayer? A couple of Quick tips can be found here in Colossians 4, 2 where it says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. How do I do devotion? First of all, I've got to be watchful for what God's doing in the world. And you can do this, even if you're reading the newspaper or listening to the news. Instead of just reading the newspaper, you can be watchful and be looking for the needs of of those people and pray for people that that you don't even know it can transform the experience of reading the newspaper or listening to the newscast and secondly be thankful if you're going to be a dev, be devoted in prayer thanksgiving has to be a part of your prayer life that's where the joy comes from being thankful to God and Paul says in all of our prayers we should be thankful to God Well, what about my relationship to those who who don't know Christ? My relationship, then, to unbelievers. The third thing is be wise with unbelievers. A genuine wisdom with unbelievers. Paul writes this, And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Well, how can I be wise and have a great relationship with those who don't know Christ? The kind of relationship that brings people to want to know Christ. Paul says there's three things you can do here. First is prayer for unbelievers. If you've got some unbelievers you're struggling with right now, prayer may not always be your first thought because you're struggling with them. But prayer is such a key. I would say the key. It even says specifically, here's what to pray about. He says, pray for an open door. Pray that somehow God will open a door so that you can say something, so that you can communicate something. And specifically, he says, pray for a clear message that when that door opens, you'll be able to go through it and say something with great clarity. If you've got somebody in your life who doesn't know Christ, somebody you're concerned about, somebody you love, that's what to pray about. God, would you somehow open the door for me or for somebody else? It doesn't have to be me. And when the door gets opened, Would you please let the message be clear? Paul asked for prayer and said, That's what I want you to pray for me. And he was a pretty good evangelist, I'd have to say. He reached a few people in his day. Secondly, wisdom in the way that you act, wisdom around those who aren't yet believers. In verse 5, Paul says, Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. So you say, God, would you give me some wisdom? Do you ever get into one of those situations where somebody asks you a question? They're not a believer. And about half an hour later, after they've left, of course, you think, oh man, that's what I should have said to them. That's exactly what I should have said. And that's what Paul is saying here. Pray in advance that God would give you the wisdom in advance to say the right thing. And you also ask him for wisdom in the way that you act. He says, making the most of every opportunity. I think that's not just our words, but it's our actions. It's the way we demonstrate Christ in our lives and grace in the way that you talk. Verse 6 says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Let Christ be a part of every conversation. You don't necessarily have to use his name in that conversation, but let your relationship with him be a part of all your conversations. Let people see that you're different because you have this relationship with him. It's like putting salt on it. Some people are going to taste it, and they're going to want more. And some are going to taste it and need living water to quench their thirst. Then he says, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You know, it's nice talking to a whole bunch of people like in a service such as this, but when you're talking to somebody one-on-one and you see them say, yes, 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 I want to make that commitment, there's an incredible joy for you that comes from that. Finally, Paul says, how do you act toward believers? Well, the fourth thing is, be in fellowship with other believers. Colossians 4, 7 from there to the end of the chapter, speaks to the fellowship of believers in the early days as Paul goes down the list and talks about some of those different people. He was talking about a real fellowship here. These last verses of Colossians say, here's, what real, here's what's real when it comes to fellowship. Paul's saying, there's, there's real people here. There's real names. There's real life here. The hurts and the joys of real life. It's all spread out in front of us. And I want to show you some people that you've maybe never met before. Let's learn some things from them about well, about what real Christian fellowship is. The first person here is Tychicus. Tychicus in the New Testament there's references, I think, to over over 100 fellow Christians. 26 of them are named in Romans 16 alone. But this guy, Tychicus, is right up there at the top of the list. His name keeps coming up. He's the mailman and the secretary. He helped write a lot of Paul's letters. He took dictation, and then he carried those letters on foot to the people. And look at what Paul says about him. He gives... Three descriptions that talk about what kind of relationships we have. You see, fellowship means a relationship. And relationship means fellowship. What kind of relationships are we talking about? Well, firstly, when he's talking about Tychicus, he says Tychicus is a dear brother. That's a family relationship. That's part of the fellowship of the church. And Paul says... He's my brother in Christ. When you become a believer, you came into a new family of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who we are. That's how we treat each other. Secondly, he also says he's a faithful minister. That means he has a a working relationship. We've got a working relationship as believers. We minister together to make a difference in the world. So it's not just a family that comes together on Sundays or whatever day to, to meet and celebrate and talk about how great God is. That's important. But we also have that working relationship <coughs> where we want to make a difference in the world for Christ. Then he says Tychicus is a fellow servant. A fellow servant. <coughs> Excuse me. That's a spiritual relationship. He's a servant alongside of me, Paul says. We're working together for the same master. We have a spiritual relationship because Jesus is the Lord of all of our lives. The same Holy Spirit lives in all of our lives. That's the kind of relationship that we have as believers. The second name is Onesimus. Onesimus teaches us that fellowship is all-inclusive. All-inclusive. When it comes to fellowship, Paul's saying everybody's included. If you want to read a little bit more about Onesimus, well, read the book of Philemon. You'll find out that this guy was a former slave. And Paul writes and talks about what a great benefit Onesimus has been in his life. And he adds, You know what? He's one of you. What's he saying there? He's saying there's no more separation. In the the fellowship of Christ, there's nobody that's excluded. All are invited. That's part of the joy of this relationship with him. John Mark is next. As you read about him in Paul's letter, it reminds us that fellowship is forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. There's a forgiveness that comes with the fellowship we have with each other. The story of Paul and John Mark is in the Book of Acts, and I'm not going to take time to take you through the whole story. You can you can thumb through to the Book of Acts and and take some time and read through the entire thing. But basically, in the Reader's Digest version, would be this: Paul and John Mark and Barnabas had gone on a missionary journey together. Something didn't work out right for. John Mark and he went back home then he wanted to go on another missionary journey with them and Barnabas says let's take John Mark and Paul says we're not taking John Mark this what we're doing is important business and Paul was the kind of guy that if you let him down once that was it there was no second chance Barnabas was the kind of guy who encouraged people Barnabas means son of encouragement. He had encouraged Paul to become all that Paul could be. And because of the argument they had over that, Paul and Barnabas split and went their different ways, at least for a while. And John Mark went with Barnabas, not with Paul. And here's Paul, years later, and he's writing again about John Mark. What's he writing? Is it That John Mark, he let me down that time, and I'm never going to forget it. Never, never, never. No. He writes about John Mark and says, Mark sends his greeting, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, he talks about John Mark even more and says, I praise God because of the way that he ministers to me. Fellowship means forgiving. John Mark's story should be a great encouragement to any of you who have failed at the first try. Because he, John Mark, was a miserable failure at his first try of being an apostle's helper. A miserable failure. But God gave him a second chance. And, And here's his name in the scriptures. Lifted up as someone whom God used in a great way. Some of you may have failed it the first try and you gave up. You said, that's it. If I can't make it the first time around, I'm I'm just not going to try again. Well, John Market is an example to all of us. He says, God gives you a second chance. And that's great news. Aristarchus and Luke teach us that fellowship means (coughs) lasting, lasting. (laughs) If I really have fellowship with other believers, I can last for a long time in the faith. Here's this guy, Aristarchus. Paul was involved in a lot of things with him, from the mob scene and the little town called Ephesus where he was arrested to deciding to join up with Paul and go on a trip to Rome. And they went on a ship together on this trip. Those of you who've read the book of Acts and all about it know that the ship was shipwrecked on the way to Rome. So he was on that shipwreck. And now he's imprisoned alongside Paul because of his faithfulness to the Lord. Through thick and thin he was faithful. Now, I read these stories, and I don't know about you, they convict me. I look at the things that discourage me, or I should say the things that I allow to discourage me, and I look at what they went through. I haven't had a shipwreck this week. I don't, I don't expect to have a shipwreck this coming week. But they just kept going, kept lasting through all of these things in their lives. They show us the real power of a lasting fellowship of believers and then there's Luke 2 Timothy 4 is where Paul writes and says only Luke is with me talk about a guy who lasted till the end yet when you last to the end God's able to do some great things in your life Luke wrote a gospel the gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts There's great things that can happen when you last to the end. The power to last to the end comes from the fellowship of believers. You can't last by yourself. It's impossible by yourself. And then we see the name Demas in this list. He reminds us that fellowship sometimes, sometimes means disappointment. Here Paul just mentions his name. But but in his second letter to Timothy, Paul writes about Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10 He says, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Demas had made a decision about this. He said, I'm... Am I going to stay with Paul, or am I going to go back to my home? Paul, or go back to home? And what was his motivation behind his decision? Well, it says Demas did it. Why? Because he loved the present world. This is a good test for you to see if, if you're making the right decision for the right reason. Here's Demas, someone who disappointed Paul. And right after him, we see this guy, Epaphras. He's on the other side of the coin. He reminds us that fellowship means sacrifice. We met him at the beginning of Colossians, and and here he is in the very end of Colossians 2. Colossians 4, 12 through 13 says this, Epaphras, who is one of you, remember he was the pastor in the church at Colossians who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him, that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Uh, on your handout, there's a a picture that I, I included, a map picture that I included um, same one that I had in there the first couple of weeks. And you can see how closely related geographically speaking, Laodicea and Heropolis and Colossae are. You could see any one of the other two from any one of those uh, locations. They're they're probably five miles apart, but very very visible to each other. Epaphras models for us what sacrificial service is all about. And there's two things that are talked about here. Paul says he's wrestling in prayer for you, and he says he's working hard for you. What does it mean, then, to wrestle in prayer? I mean, you've seen those wrestling matches on TV, that WWF stuff that seems to be more of a play than actually wrestling. What we're talking about here is wrestling like collegiate wrestling or olympics wrestling is more than just an effort in those sports you can put a lot of effort and a lot of time into wrestling and still lose every time you get on the mat it also means wrestling also means knowing knowing how to make the right moves you've got to learn the right moves And there are right moves and wrong moves. And he teaches us some of the right things to do in prayer. It says he is always wrestling for you in prayer. He agonizes. A heartfelt concern then is one of the right moves in prayer. A genuine concern for people. And he centers on God's will. He prays that God's will would happen in people's lives. Not his will, but God's will would happen. That's another one of the right moves in prayer. And Paul says he is working hard for you. Epaphras. Epaphras had traveled over 1,000 miles on foot to make this visit with Paul. I mean, the challenge for me is... Where where in my life today am I wrestling in prayer? Where are you wrestling in prayer? Where am I working hard for other believers? Where are you working hard for other believers? There's something really exciting about these verses. They're real fellowship. They're what the real church is like. They show us what can happen when a group of people get together and fellowship in Christ and grow together in Christ. These guys weren't off by themselves somewhere in a little chapel trying to do things for God. They had relationships with each other, out of which, well, out of which the whole world was changed. That's what it means to be a part of His church. And I've got some next steps for you today, too. The next steps are all about relationships. The first one is this. What am I doing this week in my relationship with my family? What am I doing this week in my relationship with my family? What am I going to do this week in my relationship with the Lord? What am I going to do this week In my relationship with the Lord? What am I going to do this week in my relationship with unbelievers? Relationship with unbelievers. And finally, what am I going to do in my relationship with believers? I don't want to leave that last one for you to decide some other time. I'd like for you to do something about it today, right now. It says, Epaphras wrestled in prayer for the people he loved. You need to wrestle today in prayer for another believer or for some believers. So I want you to spend a few minutes here praying for other believers. Perhaps someone in your family, somebody you know, or perhaps someone that you've never met and never will meet. Perhaps perhaps it's some uh, Christian group that you've heard about on a newscast or read about in the paper. Won't you do that? Spend some time wrestling in prayer for another believer. Thank you, and God bless you.